You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. And Alhamdulillah, on Legal Talk, we get our legal eagles uh, that are well-known. Dunya Bad, Mashur here, and uh, one of them uh, that's uh, your favorite on Legal Talk is none other than uh, our very own attorney, Hafez Muhammad Kuvadia. And Alhamdulillah, we come with a double bonus with him. He talks about Dawah, he talks about his deen. Plus, Allah has bestowed him with the gift of the Noble Quran in his heart. And uh, Alhamdulillah, there's good news because um, he'll be flying out to the Holy Land for Umrah soon. Hafiz, attorney Muhammad Kubatia, welcome you with a... Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I see families and friends want to greet you beforehand. Tell them, hey, hey, I'm on air now. You can greet me later on. How are you doing this uh, fine, beautiful evening? Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakallah once again for your warm welcome. And to the listeners for allowing me into their homes this beautiful evening. Alhamdulillah, yes, I'm putting the phone on silent because this phone can go crazy. Very distracting. Uh, but Alhamdulillah, we're looking forward to a beautiful Umrah trip. It's been a couple of years that I've been and I'm looking forward to spending some time in solitary recluse and just trying to make up on some of the lost opportunities we had over the last few COVID, unable to go. But Alhamdulillah, Allah is giving us an opportunity. We ex- we, we pray for Kabulia and acceptance of whatever ibadat we do, inshallah. How are you doing, Shafat, in your part of the world? Alham- Alhamdulillah, you know, this is more like a uh, holiday destination where I got the ocean in motion right uh, below me. Uh, I'm cool, calm and collected. Uh, enjoy my company with uh, maybe those uh, millions of listeners that we have around the world. And, you know, Allah made us relevant. And that's important, uh, Muhammad. And as you talk about uh, you, know, you leaving for Umrah and uh, my good friend, uh, Dr. Farooq Hafiji, has just landed now from Umrah. And I asked him, hey, when are you going to do your medical show? He said, hey, I'll be in time. I'll be there in time. And there's it. And you too, mashallah, in time to do your, you know, your show, uh, Legal Talk, and in time to fly out. I mean, how blessed I am, surrounded by the ins and outs and those coming and going to the Holy Lands. Uh, uh, half a sub? Shafat, you're very persistent. That's the problem. As much as I try to duck out of your programs, you're constant messaging me and <laughs> making me keeps me then grounded to your station. There's no way I can evade your long arm of the Shafat law. So we have to then just reel ourselves in, comply, otherwise we could be complicit. I tell you, you know what, you and I are very, very close indeed. And we feel, I mean, I look at you as my light Hebrew and I really, you know, uh, resonate with you because we have one common thing. We love our deen. We love to, you know, spread it to all and sundry. And, you know, you do a, a world-class show. That's the importance here. If you were in the schoolboy league and I would have said, hey, Muhammad, bye-bye. Can't tell you bye-bye. <laughs> have to keep you <laughs> online. Well, Muhammad, you know, you've been in uh, KZN recently. You went to Chatsworth and you were talking in the clothing factories. Tell me what you were doing there, Mohammed. Gee, so, you know, um, I don't know, you know, why I sometimes seem to be sucked in and drawn into the tower, but Alhamdulillah, it's a good opportunity every time. I thought I'll get away for a few days. I'll put my phone off. I'll go undercover, Shafat, IPCI, the die is in the area, won't get hold of me, but Qadar Allah, Allah, I decide something else. I was invited by the IPCI to go out to a shoe factory. Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah. I think I was I benefited more from that opportunity than uh, the, the listeners. Why? Because for me, it was the first. Uh, we've spoken to many, um, uh, many organizations and people and listeners, but 
the opportunity to be within the work environment like this was something dear and a learning experience to me, alhamdulillah. So I must say that the IPCI managed to get hold of me and because they had a program set out for one of the days, they said I need to please be part and parcel of their regular speaker and would I be, uh, uh, would I, you know, indulge them with this. And alhamdulillah, I thought, let me get away for a few hours and just spend some time doing dawah. And I must say, you know, we went to a shoe factory. Firstly, I need to commend and thank the owners of these various businesses who allow DAO organizations to come in because I can understand the work environment is specifically structured for the purposes of employment. And, you know, you sometimes it's awkward to then have these types of discussions. But, but alhamdulillah, in this particular case, I make dua that the owners um, continue to do the work of DAO. They were very positive about receiving us. They actually identified certain members within the organization who have a strong affiliation to Islam and we should concentrate our DAO with. So this was great. And by and large, Chatsworth for me was a new experience because we don't spend our holidays in these types of environments. So we got to see the Bangladeshi market. We got to make Dhuwar in the area. We got to drive past some of the Dawa organizations and just see what the work that's, that, that's being done there. And just to see the culture and the community from a different angle, I think is a great, good opportunity. Part of the getting away atmosphere is that we sometimes don't always see the beaches and the malls, but we get to experience what it is to be at a, a, on a street level. And um, so, yes, the dawah went on. Alhamdulillah, I was one of uh, two speakers in English. Where there was a couple of speakers in the Zulu language, alhamdulillah. So uh, we had an opportunity to present Islam. The dawah material was available for people to receive uh, and ask questions and to also understand Islam better. So we did have uh, a great opportunity. Also, uh, you find that a lot of times you have Muslims that sit in and listen, but they themselves also need to be encouraged and motivated to go out and do dawah because sometimes Muslims feel uh, they they ashamed or embarrassed or sometimes they're ignorant about how is it that they should be communicating to their colleagues about Islam. So we give them that encouragement and that opportunity to talk and to listen and to understand what how is it that we want to reach out to our non-Muslims. So for me, it was a great learning opportunity, and it was also a good opportunity for us to present our to a different uh, to a different community as we normally do. And Alhamdulillah, I'm grateful that my holiday was somehow alerted with an opportunity to do this type of dawah in your part of the world. No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it was uh, during these times, uh, Amadi, that used to encourage us uh, to go out. He says, uh, better. you'll notice that in the beachfront, there'll be lots and lots of these uh, Christian Bible thumpers and evangelists doing their work and giving out their, their tracks and talking about it. And uh, we generally, you know, maybe uh, even we are guilty as our organization, we go for a holiday and we don't do the work. This is the most... Uh, you know, important time is doing work because Islam, uh, number one, tackles everything at uh, the grassroots levels from its very foundation and gives you an alternative. For example, uh, uh, alcohol addiction, it talks about, uh, you know, alcohol is not allowed in Islam, talks about uh, adultery and fornication, all explicitly written in our, uh, in, in, in our books and that we can handle these and talk about these issues. Uh, but uh, what's your thoughts? Are we uh, really proactive uh, during these times or we get into the swing of things and say, hey, I'm going for a holiday. Your thoughts, uh, Mohammed? Gee, so I know, you know, 
that there's, like they say in Arabic, that there should be a time for everything. There should be a time to spend with your family. There should be a time that you spend with your wife. There should be a time that you spend with your friends. There should be a time that you spend with your in your ibadat. You know, Islam requires that of us, that we need to be community-based people. We're living in an environment. Allah has created an environment for us to live in. We did not choose the environment that we are brought up on and brought into. So we got to live in an environment. And, and, and whilst, you know, we as Muslims understand and appreciate that the country is going through holidays, how much of a holiday is there for us truly? As much as I sometimes travel to another part of the country, in that other part of the country, there are family and friends I'd like to see and meet up with also because I may not have seen them for a whole year. So there's an opportunity for me to reconcile men, relationships, get back into, uh, just, 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 just get back to some of the friends and family and catch up with what's been happening. And that's part of your religion as well, alhamdulillah. Um, and, and, you know, obviously, when you're passionate about dawah, when an opportunity for dawah does make itself available, then you want to seize that opportunity because you don't, it gives us satisfaction as da'is, you'll know. We get some sort of internal satisfaction knowing that my day is at least been fulfilled by having done something over and above my regular five times a day prayer. I, 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 I've now done something that makes me feel good. And I get, you know, spiritualized. I feel, I feel that I'm investing in myself before I, I speak to somebody. I myself want to now prepare my thoughts, prepare my talk, get myself in order. So I may speak for, for half an hour, but it took me an hour just to now get there, another hour to prepare. And your day goes in the field of da'wah. So alhamdulillah, I think, you know, we should encourage people to, even when you're going out, traveling along a road, take some da'wah material with you, the person that's filling up petrol, the person on the side of the road, give him a book. I, I, I try to do this as much as I can, and I find that there's a lot of value and a lot of benefit um, for everybody, you know, just just tower material in the boot of your car. And um, how, how much of a holiday is it at the end of the day? We, our life is not, you know, we, we don't spend it in a permanent holiday. We have to break our day up and we have to then spend some time in our day-to-day activities, sometime in Ibadat and sometime, you know, we could we could do a bit of dawah in the day. But I, I these are, are my life lessons that I'd like to share with the listeners so they understand that how where we coming from, Shafat? You know, I like uh, the way you talk to me, and I'm uh, something just whispering in my ear. It's a good whisper. It says, "Ask Muhammad, uh, uh, you know, Hafiz Muhammad, the uh, attorney Kuvadia, what was his highlight when it came to his profession? What would you remember? You know, you have had a whole, um, you know, long innings there, but uh, a very fruitful inning, inning that, that also established you as a man of truth. Uh, what was your highlight in your, perhaps in your career, Muhammad?" Sure. <laughs> You're putting us through 30 years to be truncated into a small identifiable role. But I, I, I think, you know, there's something that I recall from time to time. I was called to talk to um, a Muslim school called Al-Tawheed Islamic, uh, Bilal Combined School, part of the Al-Tawheed Islamic Center. And uh, <clears throat> I was, the teachers were employed there for many years. But in my when I started off talking, I said, I want to give you a bit of background about the school that you are teaching in. And they were all a bit curious to find out what is it that I'm going to inform them about because some of them were working there for 15, 20 years. So I said, but this is a story all of you will not, uh, will, will hear for the first time. So they were like uh, very anxious and curious to find out. And I said, you know, 30 years ago, 
there was a meeting. And in this meeting, the community got together and this community said, here is a half-built masjid. Some Islamic organization had embarked on a project to build a masjid, but they ran out of funds. And in this masjid, there were people consuming half-built masjid. So it wasn't being used as a purpose of masjid. It was still in the process of being built, but it was abandoned at some level. So there was people smoking drugs and there was allegations of zina and there was allegations of other criminal activities taking place within the walls of the masjid. So the walls were like half-built, so to speak, no roof, nothing. And the community were up in arms because this masjid was in the it was in their community, but it was a hub for criminal activities. So they stood up and they said, you know, this needs to come to an end. This masjid needs to be completed. And we, because this previous organization does not have the funds, we need an Islamic organization to take over and finish this job. And at that particular stage, Sheikh Basuni had wanted to start off something. Uh, some some of the local people, brothers may know Sheikh Basuni, of course, the Egyptian brother that uh, our uncle, our father that came into South Africa many years ago. <laughs> and um, he was, he had invited me to come and assist him more, to assist him from a legal perspective, but also, I suppose, maybe as uh, to explain things to him because he was a foreigner and didn't understand the local politics. So in the meeting, it was decided that Sheikh Basuni will take this project on and he will raise the funds and he will complete the masjid, not knowing that in time to come, not only will the masjid be completed, but a, a whole training center for adults and a school will be established at the same time. So Alhamdulillah, when I gave the teachers the news about how we came into possession and ownership of the masjid, you know, then afterwards the legal documentation had to follow. I think I was part and parcel of something that had established itself. So much so when I go there, there's an element and a sense of pride that I could have been part of Allah had chosen me to be part and parcel of something that had uh, uh, materialized 30 years ago. So till today, Alhamdulillah, we sit on the board. Uh, Sheikh Basuni has always afforded me the level of respect to be part of the board of the Altoid Islamic Center. And uh, we continue to give in our capacity uh, as legal person advice for them to continue the work. And um, of course, you know, the, these, this aspect is the reward is only with Allah. We, we we try to provide these types of services to them and to other Islamic organizations in an effort to promote the deen and the dawah to continue. What I like specifically, and if I can, you can indulge me, what I like specifically about this type of school is that the parents are non-Muslim. They send their children because there's a basic, a great basic education that's being afforded to the children at nominal fee. So most of the time, parents can't even afford to pay that few hundred rand every month. But because the children are going to this Muslim environment, they are learning Surah Fatiha, they are learning the Duas, and they are growing up to be Muslims. So this is an investment in the future generation. These children that are now 5 and 10 years old, inshallah in 15 and 20 years old, will become now the young adults, members of the community, and they will be able to say, I am Muslim, proudly stand up to say they are Muslim. So it's a form of dawah where you are investing in the next generation. Like this, you make dua that the parents also can come to, into Islam by looking at the beauty of the youngsters, looking at their akhlaq, looking at their tarbiyah, looking at their education. So these children then grow up to be fine Muslims, and the parents then encourage. And alhamdulillah like that, we've seen dozens of parents accept Islam through the efforts of the children and what they see that the children have, have become and blossomed into. So yes, this is maybe, I would say, from a personal slash Islamic perspective, what I saw to be some benefit that I have left in a legacy, inshallah.
Uh, brilliant indeed, uh, Mohammed. You know, a good education is a cause of a refined disposition. I'm going to take you back, way back, and I'm going to play a scenario for you. And I want you to play mediator. Okay, you ready for it? Gee, inshallah, why not? All right. Years ago, there were this, uh, three individuals. One was uh, M.S. Leher. I think you know him, Islamic Missionary Society. Then there was another yes. individual. His name was Ahmad Didat. At that time, he was with the Islamic Propagation Center. And there was a Pirbai that was uh, based more in Cape Town. And, uh, you know, Mr. Uh, when you look, and there was another person, uh, Mr. Maki, who was, uh, you know, who had the, uh, what they call the Muslim Digest. But these four individuals in their own capacity, they all belong to Dawa work. You know, they all did Dawa work. Uh, Mr. Leher, Mr. Didat, Mr. Pirbai, and Mr. Maki never saw eye to eye. And there are certain cases, you know, court cases in this case. I don't know why, but uh, they were all doing Dawa work. They are doing, pro- uh, you know, propagation. They were pub- publishing and they were talking about it and so forth. If you were present in that era, what would you have advised these individuals? What you would have told them to make sure that... Uh, in the early stages that there was a unif- uh, unity and unification. And your second question is, how united are the different Dawa organizations? Are we working in different compartments? Are we working in uh, ways that, you know, we look at our flock and we look at uh, the uh, cultural Islam we have and then we identify with that at the expense of the true message of the deen? What's your response, Mohammed? Gee, so I've thought about this very carefully. Actually, the second part of the question I'd like to answer first, where does where do we stand with various Islamic and Muslim Dawah organizations, considering that at the end of the day, are we not supposed to be on the same side? Are we not supposed to be promoting the same values? Are we not supposed to be uh, addressing the same issues all at the same time? And this for me was very, very important uh, to consider very carefully and I think I took a decision, and I don't want to be blowing any particular trumpet because I'm no better than anybody else doing work. Uh, but I took a decision that whoever invites me to do dawah and reach out to non-Muslims, especially um, you know um, f- f- from an, from from f- from a non-partisan perspective. So I don't want to be looking at who's inviting me. I want to look at what effort and what can I achieve by going to reach out. So. In this country alone, we could very well say we have dozens of, of Dawa organizations, maybe close to 50 Dawa organizations, and especially regionalized and localized Dawa organizations. That means there could be some people in PAL who are on the streets feeding people, doing Dawa. There could be some people then in Messina doing some Dawa. And alhamdulillah, this is how we should be in the sense that Let's not worry about what Ahmad Dirat's IPCI organization is doing. What can I do in my community to stimulate the dawah and to get the dawah going? I don't have to wait for IDM to send me 50 Qurans before I do dawah. You know, uh, uh, a while ago, I was we were establishing a masjid, and I spoke to them, and I told them, why are we waiting for a masjid to be built in this community? So I understood that they didn't have money to build a masjid. I said... When I was in Dawa, uh, sorry, when I was doing Dawa in Ghana, I saw that there are rocks, and this was the boundary of the masjid. Could we not collect rocks and put it, place it as a boundary, and all of us pray within the rocks? We don't need walls for the masjid to be established. 
This is how one lesson I learned out of Gawa, uh, out of Ghana, is that you can establish a masjid just with rocks, some sort of a boundary. So yes, going back, Dawa needs to be established on a localized level, and whatever assistance comes from the bigger organizations, Alhamdulillah. If IPCI sends you 50 Qurans, 50 books, 50 Dawa material, that helps support your cause. But don't wait for it to fall from the sky. So we have many dozens, if not hundreds of Dawa people that are passionate about the Dawa, doing it at a localized level. And if these people invite me to come into their organization, I cast aside my loyalties to my own organization. I cast aside my first loyalty should be to Islam. What am, is, is, uh, Islam doesn't need my services, but at the end of the day, my, I can provide some benefit to the local brothers to assist them in doing dawah. Sometimes they need to be schooled. Sometimes they need to be educated and taught how to do dawah. And that's what we're there to do. Sometimes they need a strong speaker to come and maybe challenge some of the Christian ideologies or the priests or the pastors and the Bible thumpers in their part of the world. And we may come along and provide those particular services. Alhamdulillah. The Dawah needs to continue. Whether you know one verse of the of the Bible or you know 100 verses of the Bible, people should be passionate about doing Dawah and reaching out to our non-Muslim brothers. So yes, the first thing is, let's cast aside our God mentality. Let's cast aside, you know what, the, I can only benefit my organization and my organization is doing good work around the board. I will tell you without a doubt, I have been called upon and tasked by international da'is and dawah organizations to help them with dawah. I've been called upon and, and tasked by local individual members to come in and assist them with talks. Sometimes they get invited to a church, they won't know how to address them, they invite us to come in and address them. And alhamdulillah, Allah has given us these opportunities. Feasibilillah. We don't ask them for, 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 for payment. We don't seek any remuneration because Allah has afforded us these opportunities to do it. And for us, we are grateful to do it. I feel at the outset, if we establish these types of guidelines for all these Islamic organizations, when we can work together, you're doing da'wah in your part of the world, alhamdulillah, I will support you. I will provide you with assistance as much as I can, and I expect you to reciprocate and assist me if I need that type of assistance. Let's work together. At the end of the day, we, if we all work in harmony, how much more can we can we benefit from? You know, I, I, I've been the, a trustee of my masjid for the last 20 years, and sorry I'm digressing, but just to bring a point, I said I'm a, 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 every masjid buys trestles, those scaffoldings that they use to clean the chandeliers. Now we use that once a year. We spend thousands of rands buying those scaffoldings. Why can't the 20 masjids in the area, and now there's 50 masjids in the area, but 20 years ago I said, why can't 20 masjids in the area buy one set of scaffolding instead of each one spending 20,000 rand, everyone contribute 1,000 rand, have one set of scaffolding, and all 20 organized, uh, masjids can benefit from the scaffolding. Anytime they need it, they come and they pick it up or it gets dropped off and they use the scaffolding and they return it two days later once the chandeliers have been cleaned. So if that is the mentality, how much more can we afford and uh, how much more effective can we be as a as dawah in this country? You don't need the IPCI. You don't need the IDM. You don't need for the work to get done. Sheikh Ahmed did that, and MS Leher, and Pirbai, and Maki to adopt this attitude. They'll still be waiting till today for Dawa, international Dawa organizations to come in and lend them support. They thought that we all have some mutual 
benefit to each other. Let's start up and do Dawa. And Alhamdulillah, today IPCI is leading in the field of Dawa, and other organizations come in and it lends support. Every time I go there, there are parcels and parcels and books and whatever types of Dawa material being sent to different, different parts of the world. And Alhamdulillah. So, yes, the second part of your question is how united are we? How united are we should be how united we are. People should actually look at us and say, look how beautifully the Dawa is continuing in this part of, of the world. In South Africa, they have led by example. They work together. They assist each other. And like that, the Dawa will continue to grow. Yes, coming back to the first part of the question. So the first part of the question, I think, is a bit more intricate. It involves personalities. It involves maybe you know uh, issues that I, I, I may not be too familiar with. But for me, looking looking back, you know, having the 2020 vision, I think it was very sad how everything unfolded and became a spectacle for the world. And I mean, remember the Sunday Times newspapers, Sunday Times Extra especially, DDAT's IPCI made front page many a times. And we looked at this and there was a sense of bitterness for us as, 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 as objective readers in the sense that we looked and we thought to ourselves, is that the unfortunate reality of, of, of what the Dawa has uh, relegated itself to? Let's put things in perspective. Dawa is not about money. You don't need money to do Dawa. Dawa should never have been about the assets and about the bank accounts and the amount of donations and donors. That, that is not what Dawa is about. Allah will use our services for Dawa whether we have money or we don't have money. But maybe maybe personality clashes were there. I, I was a young boy and these things had began to unfold. So I only hope and pray that in the future that when we do have these mega tower organizations, that they all we always find a way to try to reconcile our issues. Yes, I understand that organizations A's finances, it's something that they're very passionate about, it's something that they guard very strongly and they don't want that to overlap but you know at the end of it who are we really doing doing this for are we doing this for our donors are we doing this for the name of and name and fame of the organization are we doing it so at the end of the day the dawa can benefit and we want to do it for the pleasure of allah if that's our guiding principle so much of these differences can be set aside shafat Wise words from a wise man, and Alhamdulillah, you know, Allah Alam, as you said, when the billions and the millions come in, and then the people's intention changes, and you know, it happens. And that's a sad thing about it. Dawah is doing the work of the prophets, alayhi salam. When you do a prophet's job, you get a prophet's wages. Ask Muhammad what is a prophet's, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, <laughs> wage, he'll tell you. But if you want to do profiteering, you know, get into prophets, then become a businessman. Don't use, uh, you know, this and that because you'll get exposed uh, when it comes to that. You know, I, I was there at uh, the uh, peak of things uh, with the, the IPCI when all these things were taking place and I could see the mega bucks coming in. And I, I remember telling thee that, hey, bye-bye, I'm going. And he said, what are you going to do? I said, no, I'm going to launch the Siemens Institute and I'm going to do this and that. He said, oh, you got my blessing and I'll give you this and that. I said, oh, jazakallah. And uh, guess what happened? When I launched that, and, uh, and a, a, an attorney, he was an attorney at that time, Khalid al-Mansur, he passed away, Allah fill his cover with Noor. But he was a very high-ranking uh, individual that uh, was also with the, you know, the conglomerates and had this vision of launching his own satellite and so forth. And uh, when I did that, and he saw my first magazine, the Al-Bahar it was, 
uh, what we yeah, yeah, we had the Al Bahar. He read it and he sent me a letter and he said, uh, Brother Shafaz, to target the sailors for dawa purposes. This is in 1990. To target the sailors for dawa purpose is a stroke of genius because the sailors are active carriers of the message to the four corners of the globe. Now, Muhammad, you can imagine how archaic we were. Today, the four corners of the globe, you just take your WhatsApp, within a split second, you can get a message through, or the Skype, or the Zoom, you can talk to anyone at any time. But this is what he told me at that time, and I was just, I was taken aback. But Alhamdulillah, through the medium of using the merchant uh, navy, we got the, you know, tons and tons of books delivered to the four corners of the globe, and many secrets were discovered, and all that. And one day when I sit with you, and I'll uh, give you all those stories. But uh, Jazakallah Khair for you, you know, having you and sharing your thoughts on the uh, things that, uh, you know, uh, that really matters in the Ummah. And uh, perhaps, you know, individuals like you and I, we do it more to even conscientize the uh, youngsters not to fall into these traps, uh, Muhammad. Gee, I think, you know, Dawah has evolved over the years. What Sheikh Ahmadinejad and them did over the years was very noble and very progressive, but in today's day and age, it would be very archaic. So today there are other media platforms, and especially social media has great opportunities. Um, you know, that's within the realm of social media. There are also, also things outside the realm of social media. You know, let's think of sailors. Sailors don't really have a social media platform because they don't have signal in most parts of, the, uh, of where they travel to. Then you have prisoners. Prisoners don't have access to cell phones. That's also a platform and opportunity to do dawah. Then you look at hospitals. People don't really sit on the phones, you know, especially, you know, the, the, the infirm and the elderly people. So the dawah needs to reach out to them as well. Those quarters also need to be considered from a da'i perspective. And alhamdulillah, you know, uh, if a person is passionate about his dawah, he look at all these opportunities and say, what is being done in social media? Have we exploited that completely? Are we able to send out messages to Muslims and non-Muslims on social media platforms? Alhamdulillah. And of course, these other platforms. So yes, we have to be progressive. We have to think outside the box. And at the end of the day, we have a job to do. How best we do it is up to us individually, Shafat. Zakalak for that, Muhammad. And as we get to our topic, uh, reasons for termination of uh, a contract with a tenant and the contract uh, or termination of a lease. I know there could be various uh, you know, reasons for that, the breach of a contract by either the tenant or the landlord uh, to change in circumstances, maybe financial difficulties, Muhammad, health problems, retrenchment, liquidation of a business, or relo- uh, relocating to another place, uh, end of the, the academic year and so forth. And, you know, many other things come in a lot of unforeseen uh, circumstances. Let's uh, talk about this uh, issue of uh, reasons for termination of a lease or a contract with your tenants or, you know, the landlord and vice versa. Talk to us about this and how common is this, uh, Mohammed? Gee, Shafat. So remember, let's, let's, let's go back to basics. You get written leases and you also have what's called oral leases. So what happens sometimes is, you know, you 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 gone away, you in Joburg, tenant phones, you say, but I'm seeing there's a house of yours available. Can I uh, occupy the house? Can I rent the house? You'd say, yeah, it's 5,000 rent a month rent. You know, just go next door to Auntie Kay and she'll give you the key. And your neighbor goes in there and he phones you and he says, Shabbat, I'm, I'm happy, man. I'm, I'm, I'm depositing 5,000 rent into your account and I'm going to rent your premises. And months go by and you 
or much to complete a written lease. So tenants sometimes phone me and they say, you know, we haven't, we don't have a written lease. Does it mean that the tenant is illegal or illegally occupying the premises? So I'll say, um, no, no, no. The fact that they've received your uh, approval means that they legally into the uh, uh, tenants into the property. So it doesn't mean that if you don't have a written lease document that the person is automatically illegal. No, illegal or unlawful occupation is when somebody moves into your property without your permission. So your house is standing empty for whatever reason. Somebody moves in in the middle of the night. He's illegal there. You deal with him under different circumstances than what you'll deal with a person who's now taken the key from you with your permission. So you do have scenarios where people are illegally occupied in the premises. And of course, you do have the situation where people are legally. We, we're going to specifically be dealing, I think, now with people who are, have legally acquired the property. So like, uh, like, like I said earlier, you gave them the key. You asked them to have a look. They said they're ready to occupy. They moved in. You haven't still concluded a written lease just out of negligence, maybe just an omission. Maybe you forgot. Maybe you slipped up. Maybe the attorney's away on holiday. Whatever the situation is, you then have a tenant based on an oral lease. That means you told him, you know, please, no loud music. No, uh, I don't want dogs in my yard, and I don't want you to be parking more than one vehicle in the yard, you've now laid some terms and conditions for him, which becomes which becomes the basis of an oral lease agreement. Now, even from an Islamic perspective, it's always better to record things, and the law provides that let's have a written lease agreement so that we can deal with the subtleties of the lease. In what I tell you in an oral agreement, it's not going to cover the other details, like I'd like my rent on on the seventh of the month, I'd like it to be paid into the following account. I also like for you as a tenant not to not to do the following, and these are your rights, and these are your responsibilities, and these are your obligations. In a written document, you tend to then detail out all these finer issues. Whereas if you're dealing now in an oral agreement, you may only mention five or ten points, and then it's subject to interpretation, and a person may even forget some of the salient point six months down the line, and you say, you know, I told you I don't want two motor vehicles in the yard. The yard can't accommodate it. The other neighbors are complaining. And you say, no, you never said it. I said, no, I did say it. And, you know, there may not be any record of it in terms of writing. So it's subject to he said, she said situation, which leads to all types of different problems in, um, in, in, in a relationship. And what happens is in time to come that it's always best to reduce things to writing, to allow for obvious differences to be resolved, isolated and identified immediately. So, you know, I can always refer to the tenant and say, but look at page three of the lease. It says that you're not allowed to have two motor vehicles parked in the yard. And he looks at it and he says, oh, okay, sorry, I, I forgot about that. So, yes, now generally leases are for a spe spe specific period of time. I mean, Leases could be for one year, five years, 10 years, even 99-year leases are generally, you know, something, something that we come across in this industry. But if you're going to have a lease for 10 or more years, it needs to be recorded against the title date because the law requires that whoever purchases a property or acquires a property, even by way of an inheritance or something, that he needs to honor the terms and conditions of the lease until the lease then expires. So in other words, if you're going to have a 20-year lease and I pass on, my child who inherits the lease in the course of the lease period, 
he needs to honor the lease from the landlord perspective so that the tenant is safeguarded in his tenancy. And that's the purpose of the lease in the first place, that he gives both parties the right to um, to, 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 to the terms and conditions of the lease as per the lease conditions. So in other words, then, as long as you continue to pay your rental, as long as you abide by the terms and conditions of the lease, then the landlord cannot cut the lease short for any other reason, for any reason. Even if he sells the property, even if he dies, the new owner must then honor and respect the terms and conditions, and he has to fulfill the obligations of the landlord uh, in those particular situations. So yes, there are situations that the lease can be terminated prematurely, but more specifically, if it's not for those occasions and everybody meets all the terms and conditions of the lease agreement, then um, the parties, both parties have an obligation to fulfill the terms and conditions of the lease. Yes, sir, Mohammed, eloquent as uh, usual, and uh, knowing your stuff. And, you know, the, the, the culture of tenants uh, not paying the rent uh, or otherwise uh, breaching the terms of the lease agreement. And this culture of uh, you know, taking advantage over the poor landlord who, for the past few months, is not getting his uh, rent paid. Uh, uh, what happens to that poor landlord? Uh, you know, what are some of the uh, difficulties and emotional stress he goes through? Because, uh, you know, you get the wrong tenants there. They, they do a lot of... Uh, things that, uh, you, I mean, some of them may be not even documented, but they're playing the game with you because they know, hey, hey, as soon as they get the heat gets uh, very out of control, you become the volcano, then and only then we'll make a move. What's your thoughts on that, uh, Mohammed? So, yes, remember people purchase properties for the purposes of an investment and an asset, some sort of steady passive income, so as they grow older in life, as they want to, you know, just unwind their affairs, these are types of nest eggs that people invest into. So it provides and affords them an opportunity to become independent at retirement or, you know, or, or as part of their portfolio. And unfortunately, you know, that needs the cooperation of the tenant at the same time for it to be a successful venture. So by this, I mean, that as long as you have a good tenant and he pays his rental and you have no issues, it's some sort of a steady passive income for the landlord. And, you know, it works within a budget. That means he's now, if the rent comes in on time, he's now able to pay his dues. He's able to now take whatever he requires for the month for personal usage and like that. But that's, you know, in a utopian society. Today, unfortunately, the situation is such that we have many errant tenants. And these errant tenants, by delaying payment, tend to now create unnecessary abda and problems for landlords because then the landlord, because he doesn't receive his rent on time, he's now unable to pay his dues and his creditors and whatever expenses he incurs for the month is then delayed accordingly and it creates now unnecessary issues for the landlord. And over the years, the tendency has been that there seems to be some, and, and it's more especially in COVID, you find that, you know, landlords used to grant certain indulgences because people weren't working for months on end and people were unable to leave their homes and and, and, and created now some sort of lexidaisical approach, especially with tenants. And I've seen it now, you know, since COVID, that to try to recover and get back to the pre-COVID situation is actually very difficult. So yes, having a good tenant is it's a gift from Allah, to be honest with you. Having a good tenant 
is a blessing because it really then alleviates and makes life so much more easier. And especially with people that are solely dependent on their rental income, it gives them an opportunity to budget themselves accordingly and for them themselves not to fall into arrears. So we do have that particular scenario, as you mentioned, the elderly uh, uncle who requires this rental. And I think sometimes tenants need to be very considerate and understanding of the landlord situation, because in situations like this, they should make sure that they religiously, efficiently make payment of the rent, uh, landlord, landlord's rental and entitlement to avoid him then falling into arrears. And if that is the situation, then alhamdulillah, you have a good investment, you have a good tenant, and you have a good opportunity to live out your life in a, in a great and a financially stable environment. And obviously the converse is true, that if you have a difficult tenant, I've seen so many elderly people become extremely anxious. They have anxiety because the tenant is now three months in the years, arrears, six months in arrears. Not only that, the municipal account, and because elderly people, a lot of elderly people are very diligent about their payments, you find that the minute they see an account that's three months or six months in arrears, especially with the council, they have minor heart attacks. They think to themselves, how are I ever going to recover and pay the council when we know that we don't have the funds to pay this? So, yes, I think, you know, this is the true life situation that we do have situations, of course, where uh, tenants take advantage of elderly landowners. And, you know, my advice to them is this is zulam and oppression that you're creating for another person. And whether he's Muslim or he's non-Muslim, he is entitled to his money. And let us become better Muslims and make sure that we pay people on time. Sometimes it's difficult to do and honor these agreements, but that's where people respect you at the end of the day. Now, Muhammad, not all landlords are magnanimous like you. Empathy, sympathy, come with a smile and things are bad. You look at them and say, I'll make a plan, man. Don't worry. But then you find that uh, some landlords, uh, you know, they will uh, um, they, try... Uh, you know, uh, to withhold deposits for early terminations, others will charge an un- unreasonable uh, cancellation fee, or, you know, they want to do this. But can they do that, uh, Mohammed? So generally, everything is established in the lease. If there is consequences in a lease that a landlord can rely on, then he's entitled to those consequences. So, for example, if the rent tenant has not paid rentals, and as a result of which the landlord is entitled to certain damages claims, or then he is entitled to instruct legal uh, advice, get legal advice and legal assistance in enforcing his claim, and he's, he's able to recover all these costs in terms of a lease, then damages, repudiation, all these things are then considered. If it's outside the scope of the lease, then obviously it becomes contentious because Sometimes landlords also take advantage of the situation. They tend to like charge amounts that they are not entitled to be charging for late payments, administrative payments, legal charges. And this, of course, you know, can be challenged in a court of law. And um, if it's not in the lease agreement, then the landlord has got to prove on what basis that he is uh, he's entitled to, to claim these types of monies. So deposits are there specifically for the protection of the landlord's financial interest, and it should be invested on behalf of the tenant uh, into an interest-bearing account for the benefit of the tenant until the lease is finally completed. In that particular scenario, when the tenant then returns the premises to the landlord after having made payment and due diligently, diligently made payment of all his dues, then the landlord is obliged to pay him back 
the deposit together with any interest that is accrued on this particular investment account. So that's the default position. But, you know, tenants also say, you know, he's got a deposit. I'm not going to pay the last month's rental and then we'll work it out after, which is not legally the correct position. Because if you fail to pay rental till the conclusion of the lease agreement, you breach the agreement and you can draw yourself into unnecessary litigation activities. My best advice to clients sometimes is look at things from a holistic perspective. If you're going to terminate the lease, how long will it take you to get another tenant? Will he be able to pay the amount of rental that this current tenant is paying? How do you then chase up and follow up on the rear rental? Because tenants generally don't have many assets. What they have in the home, and that's worth a few thousand rent at an auction, is the maximum that you're going to raise out of these people. They don't have any fixed properties. They may or may not have cars, cars on their name. So, you know, how much of a success story is that? I mean, history and, and general practice will tell you that to recover these amounts cost money, and then you don't always, you know, most of the time you don't recover. You have to write off huge amounts of monies, even if you're going to pursue it in a court of law. So the, it's a fine balancing act to where to draw the line. Sometimes the tenant is in arrears. He's always in arrears, but somehow he manages to make good and he pays it at the end of the month instead of the seventh of the month. It's your prerogative as a landlord to terminate the lease, get him out of there and try to recover some money out of him. But to be honest with you, is the next tenant going to be any better? Tenants generally, you know, they're not, you, you, you generally do, you do have a situation is that they can't afford to buy a house because their salaries are not in that league or they have judgments and adverse credit reports that would make it impossible for them to get credit. So, you, you, you know, you're not sitting generally with the best of payers at the end of the day. You have a median and you have to then work with what you got. I mean, if a person has access to credit today, you could go and apply for a bond and apply for a loan and, a, and, and get a house instead of paying 10,000 rand a month rental to you. You could buy one flat in Chatsworth for 700,000 rand and he could pay 7,000 rand a month, which would be less than the 10,000 rand rental that he would be paying. So just from a business perspective, landlords need to consider things holistically before they jump into decisions because a lot of times you find that Houses are standing empty, especially with the market being so saturated at the moment. In my part of the world, houses do stand empty for many months at a time sometimes. In those months, landlords are actually they're draining money. It's costing them money to maintain, look after, secure premises. Sometimes you need armed responses. Uh, you know, you need uh, security companies to be looking after and managing your property in the absence of to avoid vandalism and theft from the property. So these things cost money. And yes, I, I, I wish I could say that properties are the best investments for everybody. And that's what I recommend to all the listeners. Not always the case. You got to, you know, it's a fine balancing act be, be, between making money and losing money, Shafat. Mohammed, uh, you know, during the pandemic, I call it a pandemic, and uh, Mufti A.K. Hussain agrees and many others, I don't know, but during pandemic, uh, many landlords uh, did feel the pinch because, you know, people were not working, they're losing their jobs. And, uh, you know, by law, uh, I don't know what they could have done, but they lost a lot of money. So uh, what happens then, uh, Mohammed? I mean, uh, were they uh, reimbursed or was there a government uh, subsidy for landlords who had these huge flats and uh, you know duplexes that they uh, rented out, did they get uh, paid back? What happened then, uh, Mohammed? 
So unfortunately, there was no provision made by government for landlords. Mm. In fact, I mean, to be honest with you, I think landlords have been treated very unfairly in this country over the years. You know, if a tenant owed you money, you could very well have had him even arrested after you get a judgment and he fails to make good on a judgment. So there was mechanisms that the law had placed to, 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 to force people to pay their debts. And I mean, let's be honest, even in the Arab world, in Dubai, if you owe somebody money and you fail to make good on a debt, you could go to jail. Saudi Arabia, and I'm sure most of the Arab world, that's the position. And that should actually be implemented to the extent that what recourse is there to people today when you lose money? Very little. Today, a debtor laughs in your face and he says, ha ha, there's nothing you can do. I shifted my assets to a, a offshore company. I have another new PTY Limited established now in my cousin's name. And that's the reality of Muslims doing business with Muslims nowadays, that they doesn't seem to have that honor that we had in the past, number one. Number two is that landlords provide a valuable service that even the council Remember, the government has an obligation to provide housing. The local council has an obligation to provide housing. It's not mine and your job to make sure that every person that lives in a squatter camp gets a house. This is national government's responsibility, and a good community requires that people have decent housing. People have basic services. You know, I laugh today sometimes when I look at how lacking we have become as a community that we take it for granted when we don't have access to clean water. We take it for granted when we don't have electricity. We take it for granted when our sewage runs, runs into the rivers and people can't swim in the dams and the rivers and the beaches and all these things. We take it for granted, yes, these are basic human rights. But the reality of the situation is going back to the landlord, is the landlord providing a service and the council should be supporting him. Government should be supporting him in providing a service. This pandemic, as you call it, it was, it was something that as much as they helped people in various quarters, employers got helped and, you know, the 315 grant got established and all these things got established. What assistance was given to landlords? Zero at the end of the day. A lot of landlords had to bend over backwards and accommodate their tenants. For three months, six months, one year, landlords refused to pay or did not have access to any money. And, you know, of course, that's out of the hands of people, this whole pandemic and COVID-19 thing left uh, people in distress. And we can understand, and landlords understood that, and there was no way they could get a court order, even in eviction, even if they wanted to evict the tenant. So they basically put the bullet, hanged on, and hoped that the, that the tide would change. But the tide has, it has taken many years, and the tide still has not changed. And unemployment is still high as ever. People are still struggling. A lot of people are still unemployed. So the situation is bad, but there's been absolutely no right of recourse or no, uh, no assistance that was granted to the landlords then as a, uh, uh, as a result of this whole uh, COVID-19. So yes, to answer your questions in brief, there was no assistance granted to landlords. Landlords, unfortunately, just had to stomach it. Landlords had to then bear the bullet, bite the bullet and just continue. A lot of people obviously lost money. The values of properties also has not escalated in the last five years. So if they bought a property at a particular price, even if they try to sell it now, chances are they probably lose money in the process by disposing of the property. The property market is not ripe for a seller at this moment in time. Muhammad, you know what? Uh, it's shocking. So these landlords didn't even get the rent back. So how did they start? You know, as soon as this... Uh, pandemic uh, abided because another one coming you know they got another 
scenario. You know, like Shakespeare, Act 1, Scene 2. Now it's Act 3, Scene 10. But uh, what will you do? I mean, did the landlord, so they uh, they had to write off the uh, uh, the, the, the rent uh, that were in arrears. Did they write it off, uh, Mohammed? So uh, technically, you know, you they were faced with a scenario Either we're going to pursue it in court as we're legally entitled to do after the COVID. You couldn't uh, take any legal action during the COVID. So after the over, uh, COVID, they reconciled the account and said, there's 12 months of rental, a 10,000 rent a month, the tenant owes me 120,000 rent. I can take this to a court of law and I can issue summons and I can then, you know, get finalization. Yes, that's within the prerogative. They were entitled to do that vis-a-vis a situation where, you know, please, can you move out of my property? I'd prefer then we get a new tenant who's then able to then pay the rental and continue to to to, to rent the premises from me, and I would then be in a much better position. I think by and large, landlords then accommodated tenants, found some sort of median. A lot of tenants then wrote off huge amounts of money during the covid I, I know most of the landlords reduced the rental in instead of you know to fifty percent, sixty percent, seventy percent of what people were ordinarily paying, in an effort to make it easier for people, um, and that's you know that that's the net result. So yes, to it's it's as as hard as it seems for a lot of people, as hard as it was for a lot of people, the reality is that landlords most frequently had to write off huge amounts of money and just to continue and eke out an existence based on the current tenant and have some sort of relationship with him so that in future moving on, they wouldn't be back in the situation. And, you know, Act 1 seemed to may come around and what lessons (laughs) do we learn is that we may not have the opportunity. What do you do if a person is unemployed? He's unemployed. If a person loses his job during the COVID, if a person is now stuck at home, He's then locked in his home and he's unable to go out and he's unable to earn, open a shop or do what he does for a living. It's an unfortunate situation and landlords just had to be part and parcel of the whole sympathy scenario, sympathy train, and that's the reality. Yes, money was just unfortunately written off. Mohammed, you know, you're driving down the north coast, the south coast, and you're driving around these coastal areas and you still see massive, you know, shopping malls coming through People are building duplexes, people building flats and so forth. These are very brave people. Why do they do that, Mohammed? So, see, we have a culture that brick and mortar is the best way to invest your money. Up to a particular point, it's true. I mean, you know, you don't have to wake up every morning and switch your computer on to see what's the value of of the shares and the stock exchange you got a basic understanding of what your property is worth and generally what you put in is what you can get out if you invested a million rand you would be able to resell that property at a later stage and um, this is the reality uh, of of how our parents understood investments to be about now obviously things are changing we're living in a country where we next year it's general elections as a result of general elections, we don't know in which direction the country is going to go to. We've had so much of uh, uh, of, of new challenges in the last decade and last two decades. I mean, who would have thought that in 2023 we're having a discussion on load shedding and you know power shedding and solar and all that? The dynamics of of life has changed in the last 10 years, 
and in the last 20 years, in the last 30 years, 30 years ago, when we had general elections, free and fair elections for the first time, I mean, things were pretty decent, you know, the roads worked and electricity was there and water and services and all these things worked. We would have thought that we would, the country would have been going in a better direction. 30 years later, we're worse off now than we were 30 years ago. And, you know, we, re, we need to reconsider and think to ourselves, where is this country going to be 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now? So I tell people who are investing in property, be extremely cautious. Don't just go into property for the sake of going into property. Yes, at one stage, you know, property was extremely, I would advise any, I would have advised anybody buy property, benefit um, yourself financially and have some stable and solid investments. But now I say be very cautious about property because, you know, expropriation of land, EFF coming in and threatening different, different uh, measures in order to compensate um, the indigenous people. So all these things need to be put into perspective. And I say, you know, speak to professional people and have a professional understanding of what is it before you invest millions, pump and plow millions of rents into new buildings. When there's so many, there's so many buildings are standing empty in various parts of the country. Instead of spending 10 million rent buying a building, you could spend 3 million rent, uh, 10 million rent building a building, rather spend 3 million rent or 4 million rent buying an existing building that's standing empty. And maybe for half the price you could do and achieve your goals. And you know, your input costs are less. You can get your money out of there much quicker. Yes. Muhammad, the buttercup flows when you talk and you know what you're talking about. You actually are on a legal talk. You walk the talk. I tell you, our attorney, Hafez Muhammad Kubadia, walking the talk. Not a moment of boredom. Everything, you know, he's flowing at an optimum speed. He's giving you information that's resonating so well with everyone. And I really enjoyed uh, your input, uh, as usual, uh, Muhammad, uh, this evening on uh, Legal Talk. Perhaps your parting words uh, before we let you go. Jazakallah once again for having me on this show this evening. Unfortunately, you know, this is probably this is going to be my last show for the year because of the Umrah coming up. I look forward to this. And once again, you know, to the listeners out there giving me an opportunity this year to be able to share some of my experiences with them and to just have this beautiful interaction that we did over the last hour. Alhamdulillah, we pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continues to use us in the service of this deen. We pray, inshallah, that people have benefited from this particular program and that we have whilst we have this legal talk and we're able to understand things from a legal perspective, we also throw in the Islamic perspective because at the end of the day, we are Muslims first before we anything else. So once again, to yourself, to your radio station, to your listeners, Jazakallah khair, may Allah reward you once again, Shafat yourself, especially for thinking about me, giving me this opportunity to be on your platform once again. And we wish my brothers and sisters all the best, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh to our attorney Hafiz Muhammad Kubadia. Allah take him safely to the Holy Land and bring him back safely. Time for us to go for the Isha Zan, and inshallah we will continue after that.